Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for a a good Sunday morning. Father, we thank you for songs and how they can really uh, express what we're feeling and what we want to say, but they say it better than we would say it on our own. And We thank you for that. God, we thank you that in, in church what you have is not just us singing a song that means a lot to us, but we have a lot of people singing a song that means a lot to us. And so we are a picture of a body, a family, a church worshiping you together. God, we can sing in the car, we can sing at home, we can sing in the shower if we want to, but it's not the same as when we are gathered together, like-minded, by faith, worshiping you. That's a different thing. That's church, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you have taught us that the fuel for your church is your word, the truth of the word of God. And so, Father, we thank you for everything in this service, but now we've come to your word, and we ask that you would teach us. Open our eyes, God. Convict us of our sins. We confess here early on, God, that we know that we are sinners We didn't come here because we're so good. We came here because we are so bad. But you are loving and you will forgive us. And so, God, we look to your word to understand you more. And in understanding how great and big and good and holy and loving you are, God, we ask that you would change us from the inside out. Lord, do that work now, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can use the Black Pew Bible there. Mark chapter 13 and the Black Pew Bible would be page 934. So whether you brought one or whether you're just going to use one there, we're looking at Mark chapter 13, again, page 934. Last week I told you that we are now moving into a rather uh, heavy, heavy part of Mark's gospel. And so we want to walk uh, slowly but surely through it and we want to understand it. This time of year is a good time of year, isn't it? There's a lot of good, good stuff happening. Summer just ended, and we're all thrilled about all the things that happened during the summer, you know, and, and that's good whether you got to spend more time with family or simply be out of school or whatever it is. Summer's been good, but, but at the same time, we're kind of ready for all of that to be over with and get back a little bit more focused and disciplined. We're ready for the fall. We like that. And, I think more important than both of those is that football season starts, and uh, just last night, Fairdale had their first home game, and that was cool, and to see the lights on, and uh, college football's about to start here in just a couple of weeks, and we're excited about that, and it's a good time of year. We're in August, it's hot, September's coming, we like it, but also coming along with that, for those who live here, is the Kentucky State Fair, and it's going on right now. And I don't know if you like it or not. I don't know if you go. I know some people who've never been before, and I know some people who absolutely love it, and they go every single year. The State Fair's cool. Where I grew up in North Carolina, the State Fair was so far away that I've never been to a North Carolina State Fair. I've been to the Kentucky State Fair so many times, but never to the North Carolina State Fair because it was so far away, hours and hours away. But here we have it right nearby, just minutes down the road, and we get to go. And sometimes we go, and we enjoy going, and the kids love going. When we get there, it can be a little bit overwhelming, right? There's a lot to do. And there's a lot of money to spend at the Kentucky State Fair, isn't there? I mean, you can get you a Krispy Kreme donut cheeseburger, but I think it's like $10 if you want to, to get that. But the fair is fun. And when we go there, we take our little children, 
it can sometimes be overwhelming. We walk in, and I've got my older kids wanting to run to these big rides, and uh, I got to check their height and check their age and check the person working it and all of that to see if it's safe enough, and they're wanting to ride this big roller coaster, and I personally don't do roller coasters, so I'm scared for me and scared for them, but that's what they want to do. And then we've got some other kids that are wanting to go off and play some of those dollar games. They don't quite get that it's like $1 or $2 every single time you throw a dart. And that can add up rather quickly, as you know. But then I've got my younger ones just begging and pulling, can we get some cotton candy? Can we get some cotton candy? Can we get some cotton candy? And it can be overwhelming, can't it? And then I got them realizing that it, it takes tickets. And so they'll say to me, well, it's just three tickets, Dad. Can we please go ride the, uh, the Ferris wheel? It only takes three tickets. And I think it's actually more than three tickets, but I'm just remembering three tickets. And I say, yeah, three tickets isn't that much, but three times seven is 21 tickets. And so how are we going to all get on the Ferris wheel, right? And you start thinking like that, and next thing you know, I'm overwhelmed because they're all pulling at me at this, not to mention that a guy's selling a little light-up stick and a little Spider-Man that blows up with air and all of this stuff. And next thing you know, my head is spinning, and it usually goes like this. Y'all listen to me. There are a lot of people here. We're going to try to do everything that we can. We want to go inside. The dog show's coming up. I want to take y'all in there to see the livestock. We're going to try to do it. But listen to me. There are a lot of people here, and here's what I need y'all to know. Do not leave my sight. Stay beside me. Hold my hand. Keep a hand on the stroller. Do not run off. We're going to do as much as we can, but you make sure you pay attention to where I'm at. I can't keep up with all of you all. Mama can't keep up with all of you all. Listen to me. Stay by us. And what I'm meaning is not at all that we're not here to have fun. It just means that in the midst of the fun, we can't forget. We got to stay together. We got to pay attention. We got to be on guard. You, you follow me? And in the Mount of Olives discourse <clears throat> that we started last week, in this long sermon of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples ask some big questions. And Jesus doesn't answer it the way so often people are trying to figure out how he answered it. His answer is, stay awake. Be on guard. Be ready. Read with me in Mark chapter 13. Now, in the bulletin, I had put that we were going to go through verse 8, but we're actually going to go through verse 13. So we're not going 3 through 8. We're going 3 through 13. To pick us up on where we were last week, I want to start reading at verse 1. Mark 13, 1 through 13. <clears throat> As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I told you all last week when we began this that this was heavy, is it not? This is a heavy passage. This is a challenging passage. And this is a passage that... So many people have uh, tried to explain, and I don't want us to miss the heart of it. We're going to seek to address everything that Jesus is saying here in this sermon, but we may not at all come to the conclusion that many people in the world are still looking for, when will Jesus return? And what are going to be the signs of his return? I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to spend a lot of time here. Looks like we've got several more weeks in this sermon since we're stopping at verse 13 today. But Jesus doesn't seek to answer those questions. This passage is a warning passage to us to make sure that you are saved. This sermon by Jesus is, a, an, is an alarm it is a stepping on your toes or a grabbing you and trying to get a hold of you that you need to be right with God. You need to be in the love of God. You need to be holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be one who is seeking the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus needs to be your Lord and Savior, and God needs to be your Father, trusting in His good grace that despite your sins, Jesus died for you. He died for your sins, and that God will forgive you of your sins. That needs to be your security. That needs to be your identity. The passage begins... Just days away, just two days away from the crucifixion or at the end of Mark. We've walked all the way from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We've gone through every single verse and every single passage, and we've gotten to here. We're in the final week. Palm Sunday was days ago, right? All the way back at Easter, Palm Sunday. And now we are moving toward the cross. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday, and three days later, he will rise again on Sunday. Jesus is the risen Lord who has died on the cross for your sins, and God raised him up three days later to let us know that sin, death, and the devil, the three worst things that are going on in all all of our lives, sin are the bad things that we do against God. Death is coming for every single one of us. It's knocking at the door, and the devil is alive and well trying to devour us. And those three things are working in us, but Jesus died to overcome it. He died and overcame it. He died, and if we will believe in him, we will overcome it with him. And here we are just two days away before that's happening. And Jesus, as I showed you last week, 
has been going against the temple, helping them see that they're not worshiping God in the temple. And so he is trying to rebuke them. And now he leaves. That's where we start at chapter 13. Last week, my three points were that he departed from the temple. They were distracted by the temple. And he predicted the destruction of the temple. You remember that. He departed from the temple and all the significance that came with that. He, they were distracted by the temple and, and, and its beauty. And then he warned them and predicted that there would be a destruction of the temple. Well, today I want to pick up right there and keep going. We're going to start with the destruction. We're going to move then to distraction and deception. Distraction deception being the second point. And then our third point is going to be decision, discipleship, and determination. Decision, discipleship, and determination. All of those as the third point. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful buildings, stones, and what wonderful uh, buildings... Uh, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so, as I told you, they were distracted by its beauty. Now was not the time for them to be so in awe of the beauty of the temple. That's what I preached last week. Jesus responds to that with verse 2 and says, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Jesus predicts there that the temple would be destroyed. And as we know in history, right at A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. Roman and the general Titus came in and ransacked it and destroyed the whole temple. They killed a million Jews in the process, and the temple was destroyed. Jesus, right on cue, told them, for as beautiful as the building is, their worship is not going on here. God is going to send judgment on it, and the Romans came, and they did that. It happened in A.D. 70. You can go there now and still see some remains of that. So Jesus predicted that destruction would come. Now, when he says that, start with our passage today in verse 3. They are there on the Mount of Olives. And I told you last week that on the Mount of Olives, you could, you could see, you could look down over and see in Jerusalem the temple, and it was magnificent. Remember I told you all how big it was last week, that you could fit 12 football fields inside of the temple, and it was layered with gold. And they said when you would be up on the Mount of Olives looking down at it, if the sun was shining, it seemed to be brighter than the sun. It was just absolutely incredible to be up high looking down at it. If you've ever traveled the world, there are truly lots and lots of sights to see that are just amazing. And this was one of them. And so it, was, it made sense why they were so uh, impressed by it. But if you know the, the story of the Bible and you know how any real worship is about God. It's not about things. It's not about materialism. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are focused on. It's about where your heart is in what you are doing. And so now is not the time. Jesus is about to lay down his life because nobody truly worships him. He's about to sacrifice himself as the forgiveness of sins, the redemption for sinners. He's about to do that. So this was not at all the time for the disciples to be ignoring that or not focused upon that and to be observing the buildings. So that's why Jesus at that time predicted this destruction is going to happen. Well, verse 3 tells us, as they sat there on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, four of the disciples, remember there were 12, but four of the, the, the disciples, Peter and James and John and Andrew, asked him privately. Now, we don't really know why it was these four. 
It seems that these four are, are, are uh, speaking on behalf of the 12. It does tell us that it's a little private conversation. So his public ministry is now over. We will never see, listen to me, we will never see Jesus again this side of the cross in a public ministry setting. His public ministry is over. This Mount of Olives discourse is here to them. It is a sermon, but it's to the disciples. But he is now approached by these four. Now, when you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Peter, James, and John are like an inner circle. They're like the three. Those three guys are very, very close to Jesus, and many, many times you have Jesus with those three. But here we have those four. You may bring along Andrew and look like he's a part of the inner circle too. If you remember... Andrew was Peter's brother. If you remember from early in the Gospels, it was Andrew that found Jesus first. And in a very meaningful passage, Peter comes to know Christ because of his brother Andrew. I don't know if you have a brother or sister, or I don't know if you have multiple children, but one could only wish, one could only pray that God would save one of our kids and then begin the process of that one sibling helping other siblings come to know the Lord. As we do the 24 hours of prayer, one of the things that I like to do is I like to start it off. and It was to start 5 o'clock Friday night and I like to start it off by bringing my children too, but I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for an hour with children, but it's an it's a uphill battle. But I still like to try. But there were a lot of other people signed up at five, and I knew that wouldn't really work. So we got here at four to pray with them. And when you're teaching kids to pray, you just kind of let it go. I told you all before about Liliana's prayers. Liliana has a three-word prayer that she rolls with now most of the time. It's God help, amen. And that's a really good prayer, actually, especially for our family. God help, amen. But we were praying here Friday, and if you use the prayer guide, which I'm sure many of you all did, the very, 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 very first thing on the prayer guide was pray for families. You remember that? The very first thing on the prayer guide was pray for families. And then we prayed for our family. And it touched my soul without me telling them what to pray for, hearing some of the children Pray for the other children. You know, you don't want to try to force kids to pray, and you don't want to try to force religion on them. You really don't. And so I say, we're going to pray, and they're okay with that. And I say, y'all pray whatever you want to. They're praying for each other without me prompting them. That meant something to me. And in this passage here, we see Andrew brought up again. You know that Andrew's not a key figure in the Gospels. His name is not in here much. Andrew's not in the story of Jesus all that much. But he's here at this Mount of Olives sermon, and he's there in the very first chapter because Jesus found Andrew, and Andrew said, let me go get my brother Peter. We have found Jesus. So you've got two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew Remember, those four were the fishermen that Jesus went to first and found them on the water. And Jesus said, come, follow me. 
and they dropped their nets and they came. So we have these four as the first four at the beginning of the Gospels. And now we have these four still together, still seeking the Lord, still following Christ, asking questions about the end. And they ask him privately, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, here's where I need you to really pay attention. These are huge questions. And this verse right here, this single verse, is what drives so much of the complexity and the difficulty of understanding everything else. What exactly are they asking here? Are they asking, when is that temple going to be destroyed? Are they asking, when is Jesus going to return? What's the end of the world going to look like? Because those are two totally, totally different questions. Could it be that they're asking one thing and meaning something else? Could it be that they're asking one thing and Jesus is answering something else? Well, I told you last week that Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three, tell this same story. And Matthew tells it best or biggest or in its fullest. And so I want to read to you the same questioning from each. Here in Mark, it says, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Matthew says it like this. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Luke says it like this, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They're all similar. You know it's the same thing, but they're a little bit different. Are they asking one question? When is this destruction going to happen? Because he just said destruction is going to happen. Are they asking two questions? When is this destruction going to happen? And then when is the end going to happen? Or are they asking three things? When is this destruction going to happen? When are you coming? And when is the end going to happen? As Matthew seems to say it. It's hard to figure out. And if you start studying, you'll see that everybody has a different opinion on what it is. It's hard to figure out. Let me give you a little insight. All Jesus had spoken of at this point was that the destruction was going to be of the temple. They left the temple. He was in all of the temple. The disciple was. And Jesus says, I tell you, there will not be one stone left upon another. It's going to be torn down. And so when Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed, their question is, when? And now you see why it's so complicated. In their mind, listen to me. In their mind, the destruction of the temple would also be a bringing in the kingdom of God. They automatically, in their minds, were thinking that when God gets rid of, of, of the temple, then he's also going to bring in his kingdom. In other words, what they were thinking was, when God brings a judgment on us, the destruction, it's also going to be him making things right. We just sang, God is going to make all things new again. We just sang that. We are longing for God to make all things right. We are longing for God to make all things new again. We cannot wait for heaven, right? We cannot wait for heaven. We are ready to get there. We wish that it would happen now. I'm tired of watching the news. I'm tired of how evil everything is. I'm tired of how wicked we all are. I'm tired of all of that. We need God to make things right. They had the same longing. 
But they thought, because it had not happened yet, that those things would go together. Let me show you a little bit further. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. We're in Mark, go Luke, John, and Acts. At Acts chapter 1, now remember, Luke wrote Acts, I think you know this, so this is basically part 2 of the book of of Luke, and it picks up right after Jesus has risen. So the end of the gospel, Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus is in the grave, Jesus rises again, and now Jesus is alive. In Acts chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So notice, he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. He's already died. He's already come back to life. They are thinking we are there. We're at the the ushering end of God's kingdom. Heaven is close is what they were thinking. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to, the, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We understand that, right? The Holy Spirit had not come. He doesn't come until Acts chapter 2. And so God is saying that the Holy Spirit's about to come, all right? We know that. But look at verse 6. He's died on the cross. He's risen. He's been around teaching, teaching about the kingdom And look what they say at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still asking that question. And it's more pointed here. At Mark chapter 13, it's a, hey, when's this going to happen? At Acts chapter 1, it's, is this about to happen? Is now the time? God, are you about to do this? They were thinking in their minds that any destruction of Jerusalem, any ending of Judaism as the true worshipers of God, anything like that, they were thinking that that also would be a a simultaneous or going on at the same time as the destruction and as the coming of the kingdom. That's what they were thinking. And so, turn back to Mark chapter 13, When they ask about the destruction, they're also asking, is this the coming of the kingdom? Now, as you and I know, apparently, those two things didn't happen at the same time. For Jesus has not returned yet. We wait for him eagerly. We look for him constantly. We're ready for Jesus to return. We just sang, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that he's coming again. We're not necessarily outside looking to the sky, but by faith and repentance, by discipleship of following the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our Lord will come back to get us any day at any moment. And when he does, we will be ready. 
They thought that those two things were going to be at the same time, and it obviously isn't. It's 2017, and Christ has not returned. It was A.D. 70, and the temple was destroyed. So now you see that their questions are multifaceted. Now, before we get going past verse 4, I want to remind you what I said the first point was. Jesus said, destruction is coming. He did say destruction is coming. And I want you to know that for them, right there, in their world, in their lives, thinking about Jerusalem, where they went to worship, thinking about the temple, where they went to worship, destruction was coming and they saw it come. But I also want to remind you that this is a very, very common warning in the Bible that destruction is coming. There is coming a day when God will judge the world. And you must be ready. Some people think it is wise and kind to not talk about that. But in doing that, we're not warned. I think it is wise and kind to always warn so that you do not face the judgment. So that you are not destroyed. But let's hear today that Jesus, in warning them about a destruction that is coming, is also warning us about a destruction that is coming. Now, in this long sermon, in the immediate, it, it appears that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But as the sermon goes on, which we'll see in the coming weeks, he is also talking about the destruction of the world or the judgment that he is bringing upon the world. And so, as we walk through this, we will see that Jesus answers their questions, sometimes talking about them and what they'll have to face, sometimes talking about the temple in Jerusalem and what it was about to encounter, but also sometimes talking about us and what we'll have to face, and sometimes talking about our world and what it will have to encounter. But because he was talking to them directly, it's sometimes hard to navigate. But we're going to do it. My first point, destruction is coming. One commentator says the disciples, the disciples, and all believers since want to know the future. The question was when, when, when. In Acts chapter 1, it was still, is it now? They all want to know the future, but Jesus directs them unflinchingly to the present. Watch out that no one deceives you. And beginning in verse 5 and continuing throughout the chapter, there is a running admonition against, listen to me, against future speculation as the expense of present obedience. In other words, church, do not be so uh, distracted or preoccupied with future speculation of winds and times and, and all of that, but rather be thinking that now is the time that I should be believing in the Lord Jesus. Now is the time that I should be setting my eyes upon him and following after him. Number one, destruction is coming, but number two, don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. Look at verse 5. Their question was when? Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. If we're honest, that's an intense answer. 
If we're honest, this is not the answer that we were thinking about. When you sit and read your Bible and you're not actually getting yourself into the context, you're not realizing that Jesus is about to die in two days, die an ugly, brutal death of being crucified in public. If you don't realize the context that Jesus is in the middle of preaching a heavy sermon about the temple of God being destroyed, if you don't remember that he used to say, this is my temple, this is my house, and now, just last week, we saw him say, your house is going to be desolate. If you don't realize the intensity of this answer, then you can miss the whole thing. They've asked him, uh, Jesus, when's this going to happen? Here's what he says, don't let anybody lead you astray. It's like being at the fair this coming Friday night as the sun's going down, and you'll see every single teenager in all of Jefferson County. There will be 5,000 teenagers standing right there at the pay gate at the state fair. There always is. There'll be so many uh, Daisy Duke shorts and mini skirts along with cowboy boots. That's what all the girls try to wear there at the state fair. And you'll be standing there right there at the entrance, okay, right there at the entrance. And if you take your children there like me, you'll be so overwhelmed and so frustrated that they'll be asking, when can I go ride this and when can we do the Ferris well? When can we get some uh, cotton candy? And when can we go see the livestock? And me as the father will just say, listen, do not leave my side. And in a very, very similar way, the disciples are wondering when, when, when. We know that the world's going to end. We know that heaven's a real place. We know that he's about to do away with all these fake people. When's that going to happen? And that's the same question everybody's asking. If you could find a bookstore here in, in, in Louisville, because there aren't many left. If you could find a Christian bookstore here in Louisville, because there aren't many left. But if you could find one, and you went to the category that talks about end times, you would see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books trying to talk about when. And right here we have a question from Jesus' inner four saying when. And his answer is don't be led astray. If you're here today and the news has you overwhelmed or life has you burdened and you're starting to ask, how long, God? Be encouraged that our call to worship today, if you remember from Psalm 13, starts with, how long, O Lord? How long? Hey, David was asking that thousands of years ago. People today are saying, how long? It's been the question forever. And you know what? You're not getting an answer. You're not getting an answer to how much longer. But you are getting an answer. Hold on tight. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. Look at verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. And then he talks about some settings that I think are very much so more pre-destruction of the temple than they are throughout the rest of history. You can decide that. But listen to what he says. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Jesus just says that many people will be led astray. There are many who think they're a part of the church. There are many who think they follow Christ, but their eyes are not on the Lord, and so they will be led astray by somebody that is not the Lord. Notice here that they're not necessarily going to be saying that they're Jesus Christ. They're going to be saying that they are the Savior of the world. Verse 7, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. 
See, we tend to be thinking that wars and rumors of wars alarm us, right? Are we on the brink of World War III? Is something going to happen with North Korea? The news is talking about this all the time, and it seems to get you all worked up, right? We're on the brink of something. Are we about to usher in the apocalypse? Are the type of questions that people are asking. These are the conversations that are happening. And, and, and Jesus, and I don't want to like downplay the affairs of the world, not by any means, but I want you to see that Jesus just says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by that. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars does not symbolize the end. You know what it symbolizes? This is not the end. (laughs) Does everybody hear that? Wars and rumors of wars do not symbolize, uh uh-oh, he's coming soon. Rather, it symbolizes he's not coming yet. There have been wars and rumors of wars since the very beginning. The very way that the destruction is going to be destroyed is by Rome coming with war and taking them over. We've already been through World War I. We've already been through World War II. I'm sure that during those days, which in in, in light of 2,000 years, that was not that long ago, right? The World Wars for us, those are recent. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. This is not the end. This must take place. In verse 8, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. It sounds like our world, but to be honest, it always has sounded like our world. The world marked by sin, the world under the curse of sin, has always been a destructive and suffering world. It has. People have always been starving for food. People have always been suffering because of natural disasters. Jesus says these things must take place. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, listen to me, Jesus is saying do not be distracted, do not be deceived by people who are trying to tell you that this is it. Do not be distracted by somebody who tries to tell you here's what you need to do since we are at the end or or follow me since we are at the end. Do not be distracted by, by the news or do not be distracted by wars. Do not be distracted by leaders or kingdoms or nations or earthquakes or famine or anything else. Those are horrible things in the world, things that ought to scare us, things that ought to warn us. Those are things that we ought to see as ramifications or the result of living in a fallen world where everybody in this world sins against God. It is the result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden in which God cursed the world and now we are living under the curse. And that's why it makes sense that we sing God is one day going to make all things new because right now things are not new and right and better. They're just not. And getting distracted, listen to me, getting distracted by anything at all from your eyes being on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who will save you from your sins, as the one who will be a good shepherd to guide you down the street, as the one who will lead you into all truth, as the one who will lead you away from all sin and wrong paths. 
Getting distracted from any of that is a problem, a huge problem. Because whenever the end does come, whenever the end does come, the only security at all, the only comfort at all will be my Savior loves me. And you'll be holding on to him. And it might be in our lifetime, I know the common refrain today is, I think we're close, actually. I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I have had a hundred people tell me that it looks like we're close, and I think it's going to happen. Well, listen to me. You're not going to find a single sin in 2017 that wasn't happening in 1917. And you're not going to have a single sin in 2017 that wasn't happening in 1017. The world has always been very, very sinful. And in sometimes worse ways. Now, if it seems worse to you in your little circle, then praise God that it was pretty good growing up. Honestly. But there's a lot, listen to me, there's a lot of people in 2017 saying, it's getting bad. And there's a lot of people in 2017 saying, it used to be so bad. Right? And I I touched on it last week. Y'all, this is a little bit of the main conversation that's going on in all of our racism. We got one person saying, make America great again. And we got some people, especially those with color, saying it wasn't so great early on. Be honest about it. If people are getting lynched and people are getting sold and people aren't allowed to use certain bathrooms, it wasn't so great. Now, it might have been great for all of us white folks, if you call that great. But we ain't trying to get back to that. It's been bad for a while. And it was bad before 1776. And it was bad before 1492 and Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it was bad before then and it was bad before then and it was bad before then. Stop saying that it seems to be worse right now. It was bad. We got a man running in and killing the temple of God and killing a million people. That's pretty bad. And I hated the attack on the World Trade Towers. I hated that, the September 11th. But that was only 3,000 or so. A million Jews killed in AD 70. A million. That would be every person in Jefferson County. It's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Folks, any effort to try to make the world look good, better, best, worse is a distraction. It's a deception. There is but one Savior. There is but one salvation. And it is, as we sang, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hold on to him. Hold on to him. Jesus warns, do not be distracted. One commentator says, once again, the sufferings and persecutions of believers are not signs of the end. But these are signs that attend, listen to me, these are signs that attend authentic preaching of the gospel. These are signs that let us know life is not right, we need a savior. If we don't think things are that bad, then we tend to be able to think that we're okay 
but it is only in light of things being bad and evil. And that's not my term. Jesus is the one that causes the disciples evil in John chapter 6 and in John chapter 8. But it is only in that setting where you're able to say, Jesus alone, in Christ alone, is my only hope. And so Jesus says, don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. And if you'll remember that the Bible does this a lot. The Bible does this so often. It talks about a destruction, and it doesn't give so much of an explanation of it, except for as a picture of, don't let that happen to you. When Noah got on the ark... And God flooded the whole world. Let me remind you, God judged the entire world. There were millions of people on the planet, and only eight survived. Only eight people survived after the flood because they were on the boat. That is crazy huge. You know what Jesus says about it? So it will be when I come back in the days of Noah. If you're on the boat, you survived. If you're in Christ you'll survive. None of this, well, why? What about them? Why are they so bad? Why did that happen? What did they do? What about this? What about... There's no, no, no explanation of that. The wages of sin is death, and the only way out is the love of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's the only answer. We ought to hear this, and we ought to say, I need Jesus. We ought not to be distracted. We ought not to be deceived. We ought to be thinking, I don't want to let anything at all get my eyes off of Jesus, get my heart off of how much he loves me, get my hands off of the cross where my sins have been forgiven. That's where we want to be. Jesus is truly our hope. And the Bible warns like this a lot, right? The Bible gives us that clear warning of Judas. It was silver, a handful of silver that caused Judas to betray Jesus. And you and I hear the warning that we should not at all be distracted away from Jesus for money, for the things of the world. The Bible tells us, do not love the world. Do not be distracted by that. We are to be focused on Jesus. And so that's my third and final point. So therefore... Since he says, don't be distracted, don't be deceived, he is now imploring them, indeed pushing them toward discipleship. He's asking, what are you going to do? Who are you going to be? Whose are you going to be? Will you be the world's and distracted and deceived? Will you be caught up in these sort of things? Or will it be, I know the answer, I know the solution, I know the lifeline, I know where hope is, I know where love is, I know the Lord... Will you be gods? Looking back at our passage at verse 9. But be on your guard. He still hasn't answered it. Their question is when. He says, let nobody lead you astray. He says, don't be alarmed. He says, the end is not yet. He says, these things are going to happen. And he says, it's just the beginning of the birth pains. Y'all know what the birth pains is, right? A lady's pregnant, she doesn't have birth pains, month goes by. She doesn't have birth pains, month goes by. She doesn't have birth pains, month goes by. Next thing you know, she's at eight months, maybe nine months, and she's starting to have pains, and the pains start to increase. And really what happens, we've been through this many, many times in our family, and really what happens is the pains get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the baby comes. 
And what Jesus is saying is, this is the beginning of the birth pains. We're not even there to the baby yet. We're not there to the return of Christ yet. That's what he's saying in verse 8. So verse 9, but be on your guard. Pay attention, look out. Be on your guard is, is so much stronger than don't let anybody lead you astray. In verse 5, it's see that nobody leads you astray. But verse 9 is be on your guard. You ever been on your guard before? Why? Should we be on our guard? Because this world is so distracting, it is so deceptive. People all the time are being led astray. He just warned us, don't let that happen. And then he says this, and this is heavy. They will deliver you over to councils. Councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. That sounds awful, right? But in God's eyes, he sees this as a part of the plan. Look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. We're, we seem to be all about the gospel, right? That's our church's mission statement. If you like our church, one of the things you like about it is we want people to know Jesus. And Jesus says a part of the process of telling the whole world about Jesus is that there is going to be lots of difficulty in it. But be on your guard and stay with it. Verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. Y'all know anybody that struggles with anxiety? Well, imagine for the cause of Christ, you're now being arrested and you're now taken before the courts. And it's an opportunity for them to kill you or persecute you or beat you. And Jesus says, here's an opportunity for you to give witness to me. It's part of it. And he says, don't be anxious about it. And don't even really worry about how prepared you are to say anything, because look what he says. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This great comforting that God is with us, even in the midst of huge, hardcore, harsh suffering. And then he says this. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In the midst of the warning to not be distracted or deceived, Jesus tells us, now is the time for you to hold on tight. This will divide families. Your allegiance to Jesus will cause some people to hate you. Hopefully not everybody. But Jesus says your allegiance to Jesus will cause some people to hate you. Now church, let me give a very soft warning here. Please, don't call somebody to hate you because you're so annoying or so frustrating or so ignorant or so foolish or so prideful or so judgmental and so on and so on. This is not what Jesus is talking about. If you're rude to people in your life or you think you're better than them or your nose is always up in the air, if you're never on your knees or never washing their feet or never bending over backwards for people or never apologizing or never asking for forgiveness or never admitting that you're wrong, don't at all try to say that the reason why people hate you is because you are so committed to the Lord Jesus. That is a mistake. Don't let people hate you because you deserve to be hated. Jesus is solid gold. Jesus is God in the flesh. And people hated him, and it wasn't because Jesus was wrong. It was because Jesus is right, and they were wrong. Jesus says, adversity is coming. 
And we are to set our eyes upon Jesus and stay focused. Jesus says now is the time. A decision to follow Christ. A commitment to your discipleship that he is your Lord. A determination that my identity above every single other identity will be Christ is my Lord and Savior. He is the king that I bow my knee to. He is the one I confess and he is the one who loves me so much that he gave his life for me. In him I am secure. I am found. I am loved. I am safe. Now is the time for us to make that commitment. And then he gives us the icing on the cake with the end of verse 13 where he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so sweetly the Bible tells us that for all those who trust in Christ, God will not let you fall. That our perseverance, that our endurance is fueled by God's love for us, is fueled by God's grace in our lives, that God will keep us till the end. All summer long in our college ministry, we studied the book of Jude. And the book of Jude is so short that it doesn't even have chapters. There are only 25 verses, and we studied it all summer long in our college ministry. And one of the big themes in the book of Jude is that God is a keeping God. In verse 1, he says that the reason why you're a Christian is because God is keeping you in Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he challenges them that they would keep themselves in the love of God. And at the very end of the doxology of Jude, Jude writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is a keeping God. And so we read here in this Mount of Olives discourse that there is destruction coming, there is distraction and deception happening, but there is also a calling from God empowered by the Holy Spirit to decide to have our lives set on Jesus, that there is a calling to follow Jesus as disciples, and there is a calling to be determined that this is who we are. Commentator Edwards says, the life of faith is not an exemption from adversity. If you came here today thinking that going to church will make everything better, it won't. At least not on the outside, but it very well make everything better on the inside. The life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but it is a reliance on the promise of God to bear witness to the gospel in adversity and to be saved for eternal life through it. That is what it means to live by faith. We are believing the promises of God. And so this sermon is a strong one, is it not? We're only a third of the way into it, the Mount of Olives Discourse. But if you know Jesus and what his life was about to encounter, this sermon isn't that intense, is it? They're about to come and get him. They're about to tie him up. They're about to whip him till he's so bloody. They're about to spit in his face, pluck out his beard. They're about to put a fake robe on him with a fake crown that hurts his head. And they're going to bow down to him and say, Hell, you're our king, man. They're about to mock him. And to add insult to injury, they're going to take him out to a public setting and nail him to a cross. He's going to hang there, never once having sinned. And you know why he's going to do it? Because he loves us. And you know what he says to us? It's going to be bad for you too. But hold on.
don't be distracted. I love you. I'll keep you. Persevere to the end, and you'll be saved. You'll be with me, your Savior, the one who died for you and rose from you forever in heaven. May that be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the truth of Scripture. Thank you, God, for strong warnings. God, one of the ways that we get to these heavy passages is by preaching through the whole books of the Bible. And here we are in this Mount of Olives discourse. God, I pray that we would hear the warning of destruction coming, that we would hear the warning to not be deceived or distracted. We would commit ourselves to you. Father, do that work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today,